So thank you, everybody, for joining us today. I really appreciate you guys coming out, whether you are online or whether you are here in person. Thank you so much for joining us. We are in a series called Jesus Instead of Me. And uh, in this series, we have been looking at the last events of Jesus' life leading up to his death, uh, his crucifixion on the cross. And in this series, Pastor Corey has been walking us through it so far, and we have been looking at the heart of Jesus as he has been going through these last moments and events. And as we've been looking at his heart and his actions, we've been just seeing, wow, what an amazing Savior we have. What, a, what an incredible thing that he has done for us. And in this series, we've also been looking at and examining the hearts and the actions of the other people in these episodes. And we've been seeing, how did they respond to Jesus? How did they come to, to, to re- see who Jesus is? And how did, they, how did they respond to the things Jesus was doing? And we've learned a lot so far. And today we're going to continue this, uh, this story. Now last week we left off. Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I encourage you, if you didn't listen to last week, go back and listen to it. And uh, we saw how Jesus experienced the loneliness and abandonment in the garden. And that he resolved himself to do his father's mission. And then we had the religious authorities come and arrest him. And that's where we're going to be picking up the story today. We're going to be leading right from Jesus' arrest. And we're going to be looking at the trial scene of Jesus. All right? And uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 26. We're going to be reading. It's a rather lengthy passage, the trial scene. If you have a paper Bible, feel free to open it up, or an electronic Bible. Or just as a reminder, on our webpage, we do have a follow-along tab where you can go there. We'll have all the, the notes uh, and the stuff for today. But we're going to be reading this passage pretty much in full. There's a couple little bits we're going to not be looking at. But it's the trial scene of Jesus starting in Matthew 26, verse 57. So here we go. It says, Then the people who had arrested Jesus led him to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of religious law and the elders had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed him at a distance and came to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and sat with the guards and waited to see how it would all end. Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witness, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I demand in the name of the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah the Son of God. And Jesus replied, You have said it, and in the future you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest, he tore his clothes to show his horror and said, Blasphemy! Why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they shouted. He deserves to die. Then they began to spit in Jesus' face and beat him with their fists. Some slapped him, jeering, Prophesy to us, you Messiah. Who hit you that time? Very early in the morning, the leading priests and the elders of the people met again to lay plans for putting Jesus to death. Then they bound him, led him away, and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? the governor asked him. 
Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you? Pilate demanded. But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd. Anyone wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? He knew very well that the religious leaders had arrested Jesus out of envy. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas to be released and for Jesus to be put to death. So the governor asked again, which of these two do you want me to release to you? The crowd shouted back, Barabbas. Pilate responded, then what should I do with Jesus who is called the Messiah? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. And Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, we will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. He ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip, then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. So there we have it. Jesus is arrested, he's tried, and he is condemned. It's Jesus' courtroom. It's the scene of Jesus in the courtroom. And courtroom scenes are pivotal to any story. I mean, think about any movie or TV show where there's a courtroom scene. It's usually one of the scenes with the most suspense and the most thrill in it. I mean, we have TV shows totally dedicated to courtrooms, you know, Judge Judy and other things like that, where people literally tune in just to watch to see what is going to happen in this legal case. And courtrooms have captured the minds of people uh, for generations. Uh, it's not just a new thing because of TV. Courtrooms have always had suspense and thrill in it. Last year I read a, a novel. It was written in the 1800s. It was called The Brothers Karamazov. And it was this novel about these different brothers. And there's this courtroom scene that takes up like the whole last half of the book pretty much. And it was, it was so suspenseful. I couldn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I couldn't put it down because all these witnesses kept coming, and it was just so thrilling to see, will justice prevail in the end? Will the innocent person go free? Will the guilty person not go free? And in courtroom scenes, in movies, we love the suspense. We love seeing, will justice prevail? And uh, the same is true in real life. We love thinking and hoping that, wow, our courtrooms are hopefully just, that if someone goes into a courtroom, the judge will be unbiased, that there won't be any bribes, that the guilty person won't go free, and the innocent person will walk free. We seek justice. We want justice. And that's not just something that I think we would desire in our court systems. That's something that the Jewish culture as well desired in their courtrooms. We can look back in the Old Testament law and we can see different laws uh, that were to protect people so that they wouldn't be abused by corrupt systems. 
We can look at other uh, Jewish writings, the writings uh, that have been compiled uh, from Jewish rabbis and teachers back uh, before Jesus was alive and, and after he came and ascended to heaven. Uh, there's one specific uh, collection of writing called the Mishnah, and it's a collection of basically Jewish commentary on the law and giving different laws to, to help flesh out how can we live for God. It's, it's kind of like a commentary book. Uh, for the Jewish people. And in the Mishnah, we see all these different rabbis that, that came along and said, hey, this is how a courtroom should operate. This is how our legal systems should, should go so that justice prevails. You know, sometimes when I think about uh, ancient uh, people, sometimes I think that, oh, it's just bloodthirsty. There's no justice. You know, whoever has power is going to to stomp over anyone that they can. And unfortunately, that happened. That happened a lot. That still happens today. But when we examine what the Jewish culture was supposed to be and what a lot of their writings say, they really upheld justice. They were, or at least in writing they did and word they wanted to. They didn't always do that in practice, we can see in the Old Testament. But I put that forward to you guys to say that, hey, the Jewish culture... They wanted their court system to be fair and legal. They didn't want injustice to happen. And so when we compare that cultural norm or that desire for that to Jesus' courtroom scene, we see a couple differences in that. We see some things that are odd. We see that Jesus' courtroom wasn't the typical courtroom scene, or it wasn't what was desired for the Jewish people at the time. Jesus' trial was very different. There were some things that make it very unjust. All right, And so my desire is we're going to look at some of these unjust things that happened during Jesus' courtroom. And uh, after that, we're going to examine why. Like, why did Jesus allow himself to go through that? And then after that, we're going to look at some of these other key characters in the story and their hearts and how they responded to Jesus. All right? So the first thing, diving into Jesus' trial, the first thing that made it unjust was the timing. The timing of Jesus' trial was unjust. See, Jesus, we read in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was nighttime when he was arrested, and he's taken, and he's immediately put on trial that same night. And uh, nowadays, that may that would still probably seem a little odd, but nowadays, something can happen at night, and everyone can still know about it, because we have cameras. We have the ability to document and record things. Back then, they didn't have that ability. And so courts, courtrooms and trials were supposed to take place during the day when the most people would be around. The trial could be public so that people could view it. And so if something came out where they changed whatever happened in the trial, there would be people who could object to that and say, hey, I was there. I saw it. I heard it. They wanted the trial to be above board. And so in the Mishnah, they talk about in these rabbinical writings that, hey, if a trial is happening, it should be happening during the day. And not just during the day, but in like the middle part of the day, like the main hours of people being awake so that it could be above board. But this isn't what happens in Jesus' trial. He gets arrested and immediately the same night is put on trial. Another thing about the timing that made it unjust was the fact that Jesus, or excuse me, the Jewish people were about to celebrate a major holiday. Do you guys know what that holiday was? Yeah, it was Passover. Passover was about to happen. It was about to take place. And Passover for the Jewish people, it was this celebration, this festival that happened every year where they would celebrate um, how God brought 
the, the Israelites out of Egypt and save them. And you can read about that in the book of Exodus. And so every year, this Passover celebration took place. And again, according to the traditional writings and, and whatnot, trials weren't supposed to take place on any festival or on the day before a festival. Because these days were very sacred to the Jewish people. They were meant to be remain holy. They were meant to be something where people stopped from the norm so that they could observe these, um, these festivals and worship and praise God. But here we have Jesus' trial taking place at night and taking, on, taking place on the eve of the Passover, probably the biggest Jewish holiday of the year. Now, this would kind of be like if, if you were arrested late Christmas Eve night, all right? You're arrested late Christmas Eve night, you get taken in, and you have a court hearing, and it all takes place before Christmas morning, before everyone opens presents. I mean, it wouldn't be strange if someone got arrested Christmas Eve night, but for it to happen that quick where you're arrested, tried, and then condemned, all before everyone wakes up and opens presents on Christmas morning, that would be a little odd. Like, why so fast? Why the rush? You know, usually these legal things would take time nowadays, but back then they would as well. And that leads to the next thing. The process of Jesus' trial was unjust. Not only was the timing, but the process was. See, the people who had arrested Jesus and tried him, they were known as the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was, was basically like the Jewish Supreme Court. They were the highest um, ruling um, people in the Jewish culture. They were the religious elites, and they would come and they would... Uh, have put people on trial for different things. And they were meant to be impartial, non-biased judges. But here we have them in the story. They uh, accuse Jesus, they arrest Jesus, and they try Jesus, and then they condemn Jesus. They have the same people doing, doing all of that. And again, that should scream out to us, that's not fair, that's unjust. The Sanhedrin are supposed to be impartial, non-biased Judges, you know, that would be like if a judge came and arrested me, took me in, and then instead of just sitting up on their judge's seat, came down, made a defense against me, and then got back up on the judge's seat, and then sentenced me. I mean, that, that immediately screams, this is unjust, this isn't fair, something's wrong with this system, what's going on? And that's what we have going on here in Jesus' courtroom. Another thing about the process, we find in the, in the rabbinical writings, we find that if someone was put on trial and if they were found guilty, the, the Sanhedrin were supposed to wait at least one day to finalize that sentence. If they found someone guilty, instead of saying uh, right there in the moment, all right, you're guilty, go off to your sentence, they would say, okay, we're going to set this to the side. We're going to wait a day to, one, see if any other witnesses would arise that could um, clear their name to also give them a chance to pray and to think about the decision they were making because they took justice, or they were supposed to take justice seriously. They weren't supposed to just flippantly um, condemn people. They wanted to make sure that innocent, that innocent people would go free and just people would be the only ones being condemned. And so we, the whole process of Jesus' trial is unjust. The next thing we see is that the use of witnesses was unjust. We can read back in Matthew 26, uh, verses uh, 59 to 61, and it says this. It says, 
inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find witnesses who would lie about Jesus so they could put him to death. But even though they found many who agreed to give false witnesses, they could not use anyone's testimony. Finally, two men came forward who declared, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. All right, so we have the, the Sanhedrin. We have them looking for people to lie against Jesus. All right? They're trying to find false witnesses. That obviously screams, this is unjust. Something is going on here. This isn't fair. And it says that they finally found two who came forward and agreed on a testimony. And uh, it's important that they found two who agreed because they, they were trying to, although they were doing it unjustly, they were trying to give this trial some sort of legitimacy um, because you can read back in the Old Testament about the importance of, hey, if people were coming to court, you can find this in the Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy, how two witnesses, to have at least two witnesses to agree on, a, on in a trial was super important because they wanted to make sure, again, that things were above board that people couldn't just be falsely accused and condemned to a crime they didn't commit. And so here we have the Sanhedrin trying to find false witnesses, and they find a bunch, and they keep looking for, can we just get two to agree so that this unjust trial we're doing at least seems somewhat you know, above board? And they finally find some people who agree uh, in, their, in their witnesses, in their witnessing. And so Jesus, the witnesses they use are unjust. Now, we didn't read about this in, in the passage we looked at, but there's something interesting that happens. Uh, in the passage, we see that the religious leaders, they find Jesus, they accuse him of blasphemy. Now, when they go to Pilate, and it wasn't in, it's not in the, the account that Matthew gives us, but if you read in Luke 23, when the religious leaders take Jesus before Pilate, they change their accusation. In the court, they say, hey, you blaspheme. But when they go before Pilate, they say, they basically accuse him of sedition. They tell Pilate, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's telling people not to pay taxes to Caesar. And they, they, you can look at this in Luke 23. And so they change the charges to make sure they get the result they want. And is that a just fair trial? No. And the crazy thing is, you can read other places where Jesus, he never says, don't pay taxes to Caesar. He actually says, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God. And so they lie and they change the charges. Last thing that I want to look at about how Jesus' trial was unjust is the fact that Pilate's final consent was unjust. You know, we read a couple times in the account, and you can go back later and feel free to count them, but Pilate declares that Jesus is innocent a number of times. He indicates to the people, I don't find anything wrong with this man. Why do you want me to kill him? And it's just interesting, the fact that he finds Jesus innocent, and yet he still hands him over to be killed. And it begs the question, why? Why would he do that? I mean, he is the governor who's been appointed by Caesar the, the Roman leader of the day, like he has more power and authority than, than these Jewish people. Like, why doesn't he just put his foot down, lay down the law? Like, if he finds this man innocent, he, he has the power to let him go. So why doesn't he? And we see in, in history the fact that Pilate was on very thin ice with Caesar. See, Pilate had been appointed to governor 
of that area a few years prior. And during his time as governor, Pilate, he just did some dumb things. He did some things to really make the Jewish people mad. He had done a couple things where he had kind of tricked them and then had people killed. And they had, it had caused riots and mobs. And it just wasn't good. And so Caesar basically put, put Pilate on probation saying, hey, if you do one more thing, I'm just going to remove you. I'm going to put someone else in there. And so Pilate, he's on this thin ice. And we read about it in the account how the religious leaders were stirring up a riot, how a riot was about to happen. And so instead of seeking justice for an innocent man who he knows to be innocent, he says it multiple times, like, what's wrong with this man? Nothing. I can't find anything to accuse him of. And yet he still hands him over to save his own skin. Because he knows if this crowd uh, just riots and uproars, then man, Caesar's going to hear about it, and I'm going to lose my job. And so he washes his hands of Jesus' blood. He literally washes his hands, uh, which is a Jewish symbol that he, he takes part in to show them, hey, you can have him. You can have him. So that's Jesus' trial. The timing is unjust. The process is unjust. The witnesses are unjust. Pilate's final consent is unjust. This is not a normal hearing in the Jewish culture. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Jesus' trial was unjust. That's just the bottom line when you look at it. Jesus' trial was unjust. Jesus was innocent. He had not sinned. He had done nothing wrong. He did not deserve to be condemned, and yet he is. And how did Jesus respond to this injustice? How did he respond to it? Well, one, Jesus, he didn't fight back or argue when he was falsely accused. We don't see him, uh, I mean, so much in the Gospels. We see people come before Jesus with a question, trying to trip him up, and he is always able to get out of it. He was the master at that. He was so good at flipping uh, someone's question upside down and reversing it on them. So Jesus, he, he could have done that. He could have easily found his way out of this. He could have fought back. But he doesn't. He doesn't try to stop them from killing him. And why? Why doesn't he? Why did Jesus allow himself to be falsely accused? Why, why did he allow this unjust trial to happen? You know, the uniqueness of Jesus' trial, it emphasizes something. It emphasizes the fact that Jesus didn't deserve to die. We place Jesus' unjust trial next to his sinless, perfect life, and it's just night and day. This man did not deserve to die. There was no reason for him to be in this court. It was just trumped up charges. It was all false. It was all a sham. And yet Jesus quietly takes it. He knows it's a sham. And yet he takes it anyway. And I think this trial scene, it shows us that Jesus did not deserve to die, but he willingly chose to anyway. It shows us that Jesus wasn't on trial for himself. He willingly put himself on trial for someone else. It was our trial that Jesus was putting himself into. See, Jesus was accused and he was condemned instead of me. Jesus was accused and he was in condemned instead of you. And this was something that Jesus did intentionally. We can read about 
a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before this happened. It's from Isaiah 53, verses 6 to 9. And it says this, it says, All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. The prophet Isaiah, writing 700 years before Jesus is on earth, is writing about the coming Messiah, which was Jesus. And it's so accurate. Jesus was unjustly condemned. He was silently led like a lamb to the slaughter. And Jesus, knowing this prophecy, knowing the intent that he needed to come and die, he willingly allows himself to experience injustice on our behalf. Jesus wasn't dying for himself. He was dying for others. And I just want us to, to just pause and think about that just for just a second. Just think about that. The God of the universe who created you and me, he willingly chose to came to earth and willingly experienced injustice. I mean, who willingly experiences injustice? I mean, no one likes to experience injustice. And yet he willingly chose to. Just think about that. The Savior we come here every Sunday to worship did that for us. And I think if we wrap our minds even a little bit around that, that demands some sort of response. What are we going to do with that fact? That the sinless God of the universe came and experienced that for sinful people like me and like you. And he did it because he loves us. And so that, that's the first thing we see in this trial, that Jesus intentionally went through injustice for us. And I, for you and me, if you've ever experienced injustice in your life, I want you to think about the fact that God willingly experienced injustice as well, and he did it for you. I mean, if you've ever been uh, abandoned, if you've ever walked into a room and you felt like everyone in that room was against you, have you ever had a friend stab you in the back? Jesus did. Jesus knows what all of those feelings are like. He knows exactly what it feels like to have injustice heaped upon him. He was falsely accused. And I think there's a lot of comfort we can find in that reality. So that's Jesus' courtroom scene. And I want to now just shift real quick to the other characters in in this story. Because we have Jesus, our perfect Savior, and he willingly takes all of this injustice. But we have a couple other characters here. And I think their response to Jesus can teach us a lot about how we should or shouldn't respond to Jesus as well. All right? So that's where we're going to spend the, the last few minutes of our time together. Now, the first people I want to look at is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders. Matthew tells us in, in Matthew 27, 18, we learn that the Sanhedrin had arrested Jesus out of envy. They had arrested him. Um, they were biased in what they did. They, they had an agenda. 
They were envious and they wanted to get rid of him. Jesus was having influence. He was winning popularity with, with the people. He was gaining uh, power. He had authority. To, I mean, he, he was doing miracles. And so they were seeing all of this. They were envious of it and they wanted to get rid of him. And so that's what they did. Jesus threatened them. Jesus threatened their world. And so they get rid of him. They kill him. They condemn him. Now, it might be easy for you. I know it can be easy for me at times, 2,000 years removed from this event, to look at the Sanhedrin, to look at the religious leaders, and just shake my head. It's like, come on. Why would you do that? Like, how dare you? Jesus obviously is innocent. Like, how, how dare you? You're supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. Like, how dare you be such hypocrites and claim to be following God and worshiping him, and then you trump up all these charges and commit all this injustice against an innocent man? I mean, it would be easy for us. It can be easy for me, I know, to think that. But Jesus threatened their world. He threatened to disrupt it. And the reality is, Jesus threatens your world and my world as well. Jesus threatens to disrupt our lives just as much as he threatens to disrupt the lives of the Sanhedrin. Because when we realize what Jesus is asking us as Jesus followers, when we realize that he is God, that has a lot of potential to change the way we live, doesn't it? That has a lot of potential to change, hmm, maybe I don't do this, maybe I should do this, because he's God and I'm not. And uh, Jesus himself in the book of Luke, Luke 9, 23, when talking to to a crowd of people, he says this, if any of you wants to be my follower, he, he paints it clear for them. He says, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. All right? So he's saying, if you want to follow me, you might be going this way. Well, you have to say no to that. You have to pick up your cross, and you have to follow me. Just think about that, what he's saying. The cross is the thing that Jesus died on. It's It was a Roman instrument for torture and pain it was used to humiliate someone so that they would die in such a shameful awful terrible way and jesus says if you want to follow me you have to pick that up i think there's some level of threatening our our day-to-day -day in that statement isn't there if we're really going to follow jesus it's going to confront our 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 normal way of doing things it's going to confront the, the fact that we have to say, hmm, is Jesus going to be king over my life or am I going to hold on to being the king or queen over my life? Because if Jesus is on the throne, then what he says goes, even if it means I have to say no to what I would normally say yes to and follow him this way. Even if it means this feels uncomfortable, but I know you're calling me to do this, Lord Jesus, I'm going to do it because you asked me to, to not go my way. You asked me to pick up my cross and follow you. And so I think the reality that the Sanhedrin felt of Jesus threatening their day-to-day -day existence, I think that we can feel just as threatened by him because he's asking a lot from us. But he deserves to ask a lot from us because he's our God. He has that right. And so how do you respond to Jesus as Lord? Do you, do you recognize the reality of what following Jesus means? It means submitting to his authority. It means trusting him, even if someone else in your life is asking you to do this, 
and you know you should do this, it means picking up your cross, saying no to that, and doing this. It means, hey, uh, I might be treated differently by my coworkers or by my family because of my faith, and I'm not going to hide my faith because I'm a Jesus follower. And so it may mean entering into some of that uncomfortability. It may mean being called to, to be truthful rather than to lie and to bolster ourselves up in the eyes of our boss or in the eyes of family or in the eyes of whoever. It means taking up our cross, dying to our normal way and saying yes to Jesus' way. And so what do you do when Jesus asks you to take up your cross daily? So that's the first group of people, the Sanhedrin. They felt threatened. The second person I want to look at is Pilate. Pilate, we learned from this passage as we talk about, he, he knew Jesus was innocent, and yet he allowed an innocent man to die. Pilate, he had ample time to weigh his decision. He could have, uh, he could have easily said, you know what, I'm going to let justice prevail, even at the expense of my job, and yet he still chose to save his own skin. And a job is an important thing, right? Yeah, and jobs, jobs are really important. I mean, think about 2020. How many people uh, suffered because they lost their job or suffered with the thought of, man, I could go into work any day and my boss may, may let me go because of the reality of the world we're living in. Having a job is, is a great thing. It's not something to take lightly. It's a good thing. And so I, I kind of feel for Pilate. I mean, that would be a really hard situation knowing if I make the right choice, I'm probably going to cause a riot and I'll, Caesar will hear about it. I'll probably lose my job. Like, that would be a sticky situation. So I, I feel for him. But Pilate chose something that was good. He chose his job instead of choosing what was best. And that was justice. And that was Jesus. He chose selfishness over protecting an innocent man. Now, I've never been in Pilate's shoes. I've never been a judge. I've never been governor over an entire landmass before um, like he was. But every single day, I make choices. Many of my choices don't ultimately matter. You know, I, make, I made a choice this morning about what I was going to eat for breakfast, and that won't really matter in the long run. But every single day, I also make really important, important decisions, weighing on the scales. Hmm. What is good versus what is best? What is my priority today? What I think is good or what God has said is best? And every single day, I make decisions like that, big and small. And you could kind of look at it like this with this fill in the blank. It's a, will I choose blank over Jesus or will I choose Jesus over blank? And just think about whatever it is for you that you may often put in that fill in the blank. It could be money, it could be family, it could be a job, it could be hobbies, it could be relationship, it could be me time, it could be whatever you want to. It could be anything. All of those things I know for me have been in that fill in the blank where I've had to choose. Will I choose this over Jesus or will I choose Jesus over this? And oftentimes I think many of us that that other thing we could choose isn't necessarily bad. It's oftentimes it could be a good thing, not a bad thing. But when compared to the best thing, we're forced to choose. What am I really going to live for? And I'm not saying that, well, following Jesus means I, I shouldn't have money. Following Jesus means I shouldn't 
have friends following Jesus means I shouldn't have hobbies following Jesus means I shouldn't have a job or relationships or whatever. I'm not saying that. It's really what matters to me most in my every single day. What is what is really driving my life? We can have all of these things and still have Jesus be the one driving our life. We can follow Jesus and still have these things, but it's so easy to say, no, Jesus, I'm not going to follow you today because I want this relationship to really define me or I want my job to really define me. And so we allow other things, good things, to define us rather than the best thing. And that's where I think we find Pilate. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know um, where you're at when it comes to this type of scale thing where when you're choosing what's your priority in life. But I just encourage you to think about how are you going to respond to your day-to-day decision, especially with the little decisions? Because if we're not going to respond to Jesus with the little decisions, come time big decisions come, it's going to be a lot harder to respond to Jesus. And so how do you respond to Jesus, like Pilate did or not like Pilate? Last person I want to look at, then we're going to wrap up. And this last person is Barabbas. Barabbas is a really interesting character, I find. I mean, he he doesn't say anything. He's just kind of there. Um, But Barabbas, he wasn't a good guy. He wasn't wasn't somebody that we would normally think, like, wow, the crowd would vote for Barabbas. Like, that is something that shouldn't have happened. Um, Barabbas was a thief. He was a murderer. He was basically a domestic terrorist during his day. And so the Romans wouldn't have liked him, and probably most of the Jews didn't like him. He was just one of those guys who did all these things and no one would have liked him. And yet Jesus is condemned and Barabbas goes free. Just put yourself in Barabbas' shoes that day. Barabbas would have woken up that morning, or yourself, if you're in his shoes, you would have woke up that morning, you would have known that you were going to die that evening. You would have known that tonight is my final night. I'm going to be hanging on a cross soon. But before the morning is out, this strange, good, innocent man is now has now taken your place. And you get off scot-free. You now don't have any charges against you. Think about that. I just wonder how Barabbas responded to that. We, I just wonder what he did. And Jesus, we read he was crucified between two criminals. We don't know this, but they potentially could have been criminals Barabbas knew. He was at least could have been in prison with them. They could have been in cahoots together and been caught together. We don't know. But Barabbas should have been on that cross. He should have been in the middle of the two thieves and the two murderers. And yet Jesus was there in his place. Jesus didn't just take his place. He willingly took it. And it's just interesting. We don't know how Barabbas responded to that. We know how the Sanhedrin responded to Jesus. They threatened, he threatened their world, so they killed him. We know how Pilate responded. He prioritized something else over Jesus. But Barabbas, we don't know. We have no idea. Did he ever come to know Jesus? I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But how should have he responded to Jesus? Like if we're in his shoes and someone literally dies in your place, how should you respond? 
You should respond with thanksgiving and gratefulness, and you should just be overwhelmed at the love that you were just given and experienced. Again, we don't know how he responded, but remember, Jesus was accused and condemned for all of us. We are the ones who deserve to be punished because of our sin. And yet Jesus said, no, I'm going to take it on me so that you can go free. Just like with Barabbas. And so how will you respond to that today? As a Jesus follower, if you've given Jesus uh, your life, how will you respond to that? If you're not a Jesus follower, I encourage you to think about that. The fact that this man, we believe is God, came to earth, that he died on the cross, and he did it for you. Just encourage you to sit with that today. And today as we wrap up, I just want us to think about two things. Because I think all that we've talked about, I think it should impact our right now as well as moving into our future. And I also think it should impact our past experiences. And so the first is, what's our response moving forward? Because instead of me being rightly accused, Jesus was falsely accused. Instead of me being fairly condemned, Jesus was unfairly condemned. Jesus experienced injustice instead of me having to experience justice. Jesus experienced injustice instead of me having to experience justice. And that kind of love, I just hope you want, you want to sit with that today and at least think about it and think about, man, how should this change my life? Because if there is a God and he willingly chose to die for you, that demands some sort of response. Either you're going to reject it and just walk away from it, and you can, or it's going to impact your life in some way. And if you're going to choose to follow Jesus, he tells us to take up our cross and follow him. And I think if you're a Jesus follower in here, sometimes we can hear the story of Easter so often that we just we kind of forget the, how incredibly wonderful and amazing and odd and just awesome it is, the fact that God would die for us. And it should really impact the way we worship, praise, not just on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday as well. And so how are you going to respond to Jesus this week? Like the Sanhedrin? Like Pilate? Maybe like Barabbas did? I don't know. Last thing, really quick. This whole experience of Jesus experiencing injustice, I think, can impact the way we view our past as well. And uh, I want us to think about two, two phrases with a fill in the blank. The first is this. I experienced injustice when blank happened. I want you to think about in your life when you experienced injustice. You know, I experienced injustice when blank happened. I can think of different things in my life and in my family's life where I can fill it in that blank. I experienced injustice here. And it's not fun to think about. It's hard. There's painful memories that, that are in my mind. And my experiences are different than your experiences, and all of our experiences are different from other people's experiences around the world. But I think all of us could think of some point in our life where we've been treated unfairly, where we've experienced injustice. And I just want us to remember that Jesus knows what all of your feelings are like. He knows what it's like to be treated unfairly. He knows what it's like to be falsely accused. He knows what it's like to be at the bottom, to have other people 
trying to, to just triumph over you. He knows what that's like. And so I'd encourage you to think about that the next time you're experiencing injustice, the, the next time that, that painful experience is in your, in your mind, think about when Jesus experienced injustice. Not that it, does, it, takes, it magically takes away the painful experience. It doesn't. Those things were real. But it does help to know, wow, my God isn't just sitting up on a throne telling me do this, do that. He came to earth and knows exactly what I feel. He knows what I need because he's been in my shoes. And so I think Jesus' trial scene can help us view our unjust experiences. The last one is this. I treated someone unjustly when blank. Because I'm sure all of us have experienced injustice, but at the same time, because of our sinful hearts, we've also dished out injustice. I've done this at times where I've, where I've treated someone wrongly, where I've manipulated a situation, where I've hurt somebody purposefully to gain and to put them down. And I'm sure if we all think about it, at some point in our life we've done that, whether in, in actual word or deed or at least in our hearts. And I want us just to remember that. If, you're, if you have done that, I want you to think about what that means to the people we do that to. How can we live lives where we're not dishing out injustice? What do we need to change? Maybe if we're currently living in a way that is doing that to, to a spouse or to a family member or a boss or whoever. How can we change what we say and do each and every day so that we aren't dishing out injustice? So that we are sharing the love and grace of Jesus with others. And, but also, I want us to remember that the fact that Jesus experienced injustice, but we deserve justice. The injustice we've heaped out on others, the times we've been unfair and falsely accused others, Jesus died for that. There is freedom in him. There is forgiveness. And maybe you're here today and you've never experienced the love and grace of Christ before. And I want you to encourage you to think about that reality today. That no matter who you are, what you've done, whether you've heaped injustices on other people or you've had injustices heaped on you, there is love and grace and forgiveness at the cross. Jesus knows our experiences. He understands. And he still loves us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you so much for being our God. Thank you so much for remaining silent in the courtroom and for taking all that injustice. You understand how we feel in this broken world where there is injustice everywhere. You understand everything. And so thank you for being our God. Thank you for loving us. Today, may we turn to you, respond to you, knowing that, yes, you ask us to take up our cross, but you ask us because you love us, because you know what's best for us. Help us today and this week to worship you because of what you've done for us, but also to follow you wholeheartedly. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.